Well, um, I hope everybody's in a nice dry house with roofs that are nice and tight. And uh, we're supposed to get a lot of rain all over this region, uh, starting like now. It'll be interesting. The um, Torah portion this week is Vayigash. And let's say a blessing. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotah B'tzivanu Asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, creator of all, who makes us holy through your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging in the words of Torah. Amen. Oh, it's raining in Asheville too. I'm glad you're here, Roberta. So, Vayigash is an amazing portion because it begins with the confrontation between Judah and Joseph, where, and this is not where we're going to focus today, where Joseph, still in disguise, has said, oh, just leave Benjamin here as my prisoner. You're all welcome to go home now. And Judah steps forward and passionately explains, demands, expresses that it's not gonna happen. Take me instead. I will not let this happen. This reaches into Joseph's heart in a way that uh, he cannot restrain himself. And he blurts out, I'm Joseph. And uh, is my father well? And this is the moment when the family, where he reveals his identity to his family. It's such a beautiful, moving passage. And it says, and the brothers were so stunned they couldn't even say anything. And uh, then uh, the story continues and Joseph um, arranges for that to go back, for them to go back up to the land of Canaan retrieve his father who learns that his son Joseph is alive, bring them all down to Egypt where they can weather the famine. Jacob lays eyes on Joseph for the first time in 20 years and says, literally in the Torah says, now I can die because I've seen your face again. It's a very poignant, beautiful, everyone can relate to it. And, uh, and um, he introduces his family to Pharaoh and the Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, settle anywhere you want. They go to the land of Goshen. And so the, the stage is being set for what's going to happen in the book of Exodus, which is coming soon. And um, then before the portion ends, there's a lengthy section that now turns its attention to how Joseph, it, it, um, um, administers food throughout the years of the famine. And we've looked at this passage before, but I want to look at it again, because it's such an, it's, to say it's multi-layered, it's, it's, that's what it is. It's an incredibly multi-layered um, account that we usually kind of glide over because the rest of the story is so compelling. Um, and uh, I want to look at it today. So I'm going to share my screen.
Hold on a moment. Let's see. I've learned how to get my get your boxes on the bottom of my screen. Now there we go. I did it. So that passage just ends in verse 12 of chapter 47. <clears throat> Joseph sustained his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread. Lechem. Down to even the little ones. And now it shifts gears using the word lechem as the, as the bridge. Velechem ein bechol ha'aretz. Now there was no bread in all the world, for the famine was very severe. Both the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. I was reading one historical commentary that says, that's unlikely because the land of Egypt relied on the Nile, um, which brought water from thousands of miles to the south, whereas the land of Canaan relies on annual rainfall. So unless this was really a famine that, that um, uh, affected everything from Central Africa up through the, the Near East, it wouldn't have been a likely scenario, but I'm not looking for historical um, verities, as you know, uh, in, in this ancient story. Um, Joseph gathered in all the money that was to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan as payment for the rations that were being procured. And Joseph, Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's palace. And when the money, because they, they were legitimately selling the grain. So people brought their money, they, they sold the grain and they could stay alive. Thanks to Joseph's foresight in collecting massive stores of grain during the seven years of plenty. And when the money gave out in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread lest we die before your very eyes for the money is gone. And Joseph said, bring your livestock and I will sell to you against your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread. Boy, this word lechem comes up so much in this. I hadn't noticed that before. And Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, for the stocks of sheep and cattle and the asses. Thus he provided them with bread that year in exchange for all their livestock. I'm assuming, and I think I assume correctly that the people kept their livestock, but it belonged now to Pharaoh um, because that's the means of production, you know, the, but it belonged to Pharaoh because that's why it said, uh, I will sell it to you against your livestock. And when that year ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we cannot hide from my Lord that with all the money and animal stocks consigned to my Lord, nothing is left at my Lord's disposal save our persons and our farmland. Let us not perish before your eyes, both we and our land. Take us and our land in exchange for lechem, for bread, 
and we with our land will be serfs to Pharaoh. Okay, serfs, Hebrew everybody. Avadim, slaves, serf, servant, all the same word in Hebrew. Avadim lefaro. So all the Egyptians are avadim lefaro. This is so interesting. In the sense of being, in sense of being serfs, provide the seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become a waste. So Joseph gained possession of all the farmland of Egypt for Pharaoh. Every Egyptian having sold his field because the famine was too much for them. Thus the land passed over to Pharaoh. But to he ha'aretz Pharaoh, it was his. Now this is a very complicated sentence. And he removed the population town by town from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Um, most translators, many translators think this word le'arim means town or city. He transferred the population to cities from one end of Egypt to the other. It doesn't make much sense. Could I'm interested in hearing people make sense of it. Many scholars think that le'arim might have been a a scribal era that was once La Avadim. The town all became, were transferred to him as slaves from one end of, the, of Egypt to the other end. Because um, why would he remove them from the land? Who would work the land? So this is a very confusing line. And uh, one way translators try to satisfy it is by thinking that perhaps this is a mistake. But we don't know, but I, it could be. Let me talk about scribal errors for a moment. The way texts were preserved um, was by scribes, who when a copy became worn out or when it was necessary to create an additional copy would copy it. That's how they do it. and. The reason we know that there are scribal errors in the Bible is because we have various ancient texts that differ from each other. And they differ from each other precisely around issues like this. If you know Hebrew, there's a resh. Let's find a dalit. There's a dalit. A dalit looks like that. A resh looks like that. The only difference is this tiny little thing on the dalit there. So it's entirely possible that a scribe might misread a letter. One of the biggest misreadings where you have variants all over the place in different texts is the difference between a vav and a yud. If you make the stalk of the yud just a little too long, you might think it's a vav. And so there's a history of scribal errors that I wanted to explain to you that uh, in modern times, when we've gained access to ancient manuscripts, we find that they're not all the same. And by comparing them, we can take, not me, scholars can take guesses on what might have been the original reading, but it's still a guess. 
Okay, I think that's an important aside for you to understand. I'm going to assume that he didn't remove the population, but he, they became his serfs. Only the land of the priests he did not take over, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh had made to them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. The priests couldn't grow anything, but they um, were already on the, on the federal payroll. And they must have been a very powerful um, group in Egypt to merit that, right? Uh, okay. Then Joseph said to the people, whereas I have this day acquired you and your land for Pharaoh, here is seed for you to sow the land. And when the harvest comes, you shall give one-fifth, 20% to Pharaoh. And four-fifths shall be yours as seed for the fields and as food for you and those in your household and as nourishment for your children. They become tenant farmers, paying, paying rent to the owner, Pharaoh. But they say to him, and they said, you have saved our lives. We are grateful to my Lord and we shall be avadim Now, if you know the Haggadah, avadim we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. So that's very interesting uh, that that phrase is right there. We are grateful to my Lord and we shall be serfs to Pharaoh. And Joseph made it into a land law in Egypt, which is still valid that a fifth should be Pharaoh's. Only the land of the priests should, did not become Pharaoh's. And thus Israel settled in the country of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired holdings in it and were fertile and increased greatly. And that's the end of the Parsha. The next Parsha, Vayachi, is the last three chapters of Genesis that uh, conclude the story of Joseph, the death of Jacob, and then at the very end of Genesis, which we'll look at next week, the death of Joseph and the end of the book of Genesis. Okay, so I think that's a wonderful passage. Let me take it down uh, for a bit so I can see you all. Great. I wonder, I'd love for you, if you have a reaction or a thought before I jump right in that you want to type into the chat, uh, or if you need to, if it's a long thing and you want to just raise your hand, I'll scan and see if I can spot you. Blaze? I've been listening to a series called Seeing White on, mm -hmm. you know, do you know that series? It's on a radio show called, I think it's I can't remember the name of the show. I think it's seen, let me see if I can find it. Just give me a minute here. Well, don't tell uh, us that now, just tell us that. Right. Anyway, the episode I listened to talks about the Dakota War in Minnesota that was happening at the same time as the Civil War. And this portion about um, giving over their land and their livestock and all of their possessions um, reminds me of what happened to the native people that had to do that in order to pay their debts. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a very sad story. And then they were all removed because, of course, they couldn't pay their debts. Um, so it just, it really tugged at me because that story that I listened to about the, the Dakota War in Minnesota was very, um, very moving and very sad and very heartbreaking. And so this was kind of echoing or that was kind of echoing this for me. And uh, anyway, if anybody wants to listen to it or find it, you can. It's called Seeing White is the um, name of the story. There it is, Seen on Radio. Seen on Radio, that's it, yeah. That's a great series, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so- Doesn't speak well for Joseph, but you know, I'm not gonna be critical. So, no, no, that's okay. Through our con, con, through our very current lens, it doesn't look good. This looks terrible for Joseph, right? He is consolidating all land in the hands of the all-powerful ruler. Um, and uh, he uses the famine in order to do that. Yes, that's one way to read this passage. I wanted to hear it. I wanted you to uh, point that out. Uh, Roni said, my thought was that in the time of famine, the importance of farms and countryside would diminish and the cities would have more prominence. Ah, that's a good observation, Roni, so that there was nothing to work on the land. There was no feed there. Uh, Good point. So maybe everyone moves closer to the cities. That's entirely possible. Thank you for that, that insight. Roberta said, moved from the land may mean their ownership was removed. This makes sense in context of them becoming serf slaves and the contrast to the Levites, not the Levites, um, but the Egyptian priests in this case, Roberta. It's the Egyptian priesthood who uh, is not um, restricted or whose land is not taken. But yes, their ownership was removed. Evir could also mean to remove or take away. That's right. Um, Ellen Weaver says, I know it's the same word, but a tenant farmer is different from an actual slave. The serfs had their fields and families, even though they didn't own anymore. When Israel became slaves, they had overseers literally over them, no choice of what to do. Excellent. So let's talk about the category of Eved in the ancient world. Serfs, slaves, uh, servants of, right? Because in the Torah, slavery, the context of belonging to another household, you're being, having a master, was an assumed, an assumed status of society. The Torah, and this is important to remember, and many of you know this, never abolishes slavery. They abolish in the laws of, and the, and the Israelites continue to own slaves, even once they're in their own land. The Torah abolishes and um, makes, makes uh, illegal the cruel treatment of slaves. Because, and this is where the, this is, this is the revolutionary aspect of the Torah, it doesn't imagine a society that doesn't have the, the institution of slavery, but it imagines a society where every human being is understood to be made in God's image. That means that 
if you mistreat any human being or treat them cruel to cruelly, you are defiling the image of God. But the institution of slavery itself is never abolished in the Torah. And so to be an Eved means to, because also means to be a servant. It means you have a master. And we are called servants of yod heh vav All Israel are servants of the creator. So that doesn't, uh, that doesn't negate the possibility of being also an Ebed of someone's household, but it does negate the possibility of that individual treating you as less than a human being. And that's the crucial revolutionary transformation. There's one more thing. Israelites can't own in the Torah another Israelite as a slave. They can own them as an indentured, they can have them be an indentured servant, but after six years in the seventh year, they have to let them go free. Unless that Israelite says, no, I wanna be a part of your household forever, at which point they voluntarily become a servant of that household. Does that make sense, everybody? So, so there's all kinds of levels of, um, of this, but the, in the Torah, but the fundamental understanding is that Pharaoh's cruelty towards the Israelites is what's unacceptable, right? His demeaning of them, his treating them like vermin, like less than humans, and the language Pharaoh uses to describe the Hebrews uses language like that. And when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, it is so that they might serve, la'avod, they might serve yod heh the source of all, because that's, that's who our true master is. I think that's worth explaining again, because we re retroject uh, so many of our own ideas back then, back to then. Um, so we, so yes, okay, good. Um, we can save the chat, uh, Elizabeth. We will definitely save the chat. I think it's saved automatically. Isn't that right, Karen? Yes, it is. Yes, good, good. Roberta Wall says, also in our Native American history, there is a distinction between removal from the land, which happened here in North Carolina to the Cherokee, and losing ownership, like in New York. Oh, fascinating. Um, there. Yeah, I just, uh, my neighbor just told me this morning, the expression Indian giver, that, that uh, where it comes from is that the native peoples, like I grew up in New York City and, and we were taught over and over and over, Manhattan was purchased for $24 worth of right. gold and to the native peoples, there was no purchase of the land. It was just an exchange of goodwill. Um, and so um, they then at a certain point say, okay, now we're coming back from the winter or the summer or wherever, and we want to come back and use the land. And the, the white colonialists didn't understand. <laughs> they thought they had purchased it. That, so, no, that, that's right. There were two completely different understandings of property. Uh, and uh, 
the European understanding of property was that the land belongs to the person that purchases it. The Native American understanding was you don't own the land. Mm -hmm. We come from the land. And it's a completely different understanding of our relationship to earth. That is also the case in the Torah, where we learn in Leviticus, when God says, you can't own the land, it belongs to God, it's only leased to you. So mm -hmm. this becomes a larger discussion of the indigenous, and we were native and indigenous in our land in ancient time, the indigenous understanding of the great spirit being the, the owner, as it were, uh, and us being fortunate residents thereon, as opposed to the idea that comes out of uh, modernity that you, especially that you own land and therefore have access to all the resources within it. Um, uh, but that wasn't where I was gonna go today, but it's worth another subject really worth exploring. Um, the harvest and seeds all came from the people who gave some from every harvest to be stored against the coming famine. Joseph was selling back to them what they already owned. So here's a way to condemn Joseph and Pharaoh's actions. Um, they had collected all the food. Why shouldn't they just give it back now? Yes, this is a problematic passage in that way. Um, the Arya Kaplan translation is just moved the people to cities, okay. They are desperate to gain sustenance and survival, but lose agency. It is a devil's bargain that was made on their behalf by Joseph. Um, and Cora says, I wanna confirm as a professional calligrapher, Cora is a professional calligrapher, everybody. Cora, you have a website, right? Uh, yes, she, ste she steps away, but um, it's CoraPearlCalligraphy.com. CoraPearlCalligraphy.com, if you wanna see some amazing calligraphy. And Cora is confirming that scribal error is real. <laughs> Thank you, Cora. Deborah says, the overriding thing for me is how the misfortune of the people was used to enrich Pharaoh, ouch. Carol Fox Prescott says, very much like tenant farmers in England, the Lord owns the land, but the farmers live on it, work it and pay some part of it to the Lord. Mm -hmm. The misfortune of people today is enriching Jeff Bezos. Thank you, Karen. Uh, it's astonishing. Uh, and the Torah says, don't forget who owns the land. You are just tenants upon it. So um, thank you for all those comments. So on one level, what's Joseph doing? Uh, through, our, through our contemporary lens, wouldn't there have been another way to redistribute the, the, the food um, to the people? Uh, um, and Arthur Wasco, of course, has written in this week about sharecroppers to Pharaoh, right? That's what a sharecropper is, kept permanently in debt because they don't own the land and they owe so much that they have to purchase the seed again on credit and are continuously and forever in debt, no matter how hard they work. And Carol says, look how hard it is for our government to give anything back to the people. So there's a very critical uh, take we can have on what Joseph is doing here. And on the one hand, on the other hand, the Torah 
has not a hint of condemnation of his behavior. So we have to be aware of that. I'm not saying that he that it's righteous or unrighteous, um, but um, we have to think about what what stories we want to tell about this, and then what story might the Torah be telling about it. I see a couple of hands, Pauline and then Diane. Oh, Pauline stepped away. Diane? It, thank you once again for uh, increasing my cynicism. <clears throat> and oh, you're uh, welcome. Yeah, and that is my, that is my mission. <laughs> and uh, by showing, um, but I, it's on the path to something better, which I guess is to recognize the humanity of humans. And, you know, once again, we see these figures that uh, have been held up as heroes or heroines had another side. Everybody has another side. Mm -hmm. And things that seem like wonderful, isn't that great? It ain't over till it's over, and it's, you know, it, it's never over. That's right. So let me travel that. Thank you, Diane. And when Pauline gets back, we'll let her speak, but she must have had to step away for a minute. Um, so it's never over till it's over, and it's never over. That's what's going on in the Torah, okay? Um, interestingly, The way the it in the within chapters from now, this pharaoh is going to die, a new pharaoh is going to rise, and is going to brutally enslave the Israelites. Now, when you read Torah, you know that there every, there's everything is cause and effect. That is, or cause and effect. What goes around comes around might be the best way to describe what happens in the Torah. Jacob tricks his father, Isaac, in the dark, goes to his, uh, uh, goes to Laban's, and Laban tricks Jacob in the dark by substituting Leah for Rachel in the marriage bed. You know, the Abraham evicts Hagar, the Egyptian um slave from their house ultimately we will be enslaved in egypt uh there's you can see the kind of um the actions that lead one to the next ah i'm going to talk about that in a minute but ellen's made an important comment think of how huge his job was keep the grain from rotting figuring out how to distribute not a small job. He gets the job because he's recognizing that God has set this in motion. Huge crops for the first years, survival only for the famine years. Without the judgment, our judgment, which I'm not saying is illegitimate, of Joseph increasing the wealth gap, um, um, uh, consolidating all power in the throne, all of the things we could critique Joseph for, Joseph is also in this story saving the world. And he's doing it because he recognizes with his discernment God's plan. Um, 
that in, and it is because of his foresight and his ability to organize and his, um, he saves the world. That word lechem gets repeated over and over. He feeds the world. Um, and so is Joseph a hero or is he, um, is he a, a tool of the government, you know? Um, Pauline, I'm sorry, your hand was up before and I didn't recognize you. No, you're okay? All right. Um, so there's a bigger picture going on here for me, which is, yeah, both, exactly, which is that Joseph, See, how, how do I want to say this? Um, Joseph has learned in the incredible ups and downs of his life to trust that the downs are going to serve the ups somehow, that the downs exist in order for the next up to happen, that you can't get there without going through the darkness, whether he's in one jail or another, um, he, uh, so, and that brings us back to the line that he says in the beginning of this Parsha, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to Egypt. Now, don't be troubled and don't be chagrined because you sent me here, for it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There have already been two years of famine in the land and there remain five more years. So God sent me ahead of you to assure your survival in the land and to keep you alive for a great deliverance. So there's that little hint that Joseph says that there's going to be a great deliverance, but it's not gonna happen until there's a huge down again, a darkness for a long time. So he says, so it's not you who sent me here, but the God who made me a father to Pharaoh, a Lord of all his household, a ruler of the whole land of Egypt. It's not you who sent me here, but God who sent me here. So rather than, so I was reading this and thinking this really asks a lot of us, rather than coming up with a more facile geopolitical critique, which is legitimate. The Torah is asking us to think about the sweep of our lives and to understand, and this is a hard thing to do, that the mistakes we made, all the times we broke things, all the relationships we screwed up, had to happen in order for us to reach the next level of integration, expanded awareness, wisdom. Um, I'm still screwing up. And, but I'm also able to learn from my screw ups. Um, and that seems to be the much larger pattern of the Torah. Uh, Joseph, more than that, sometimes what's necessary 
creates much breakage. If we assume that there was no other way for Joseph to proceed in his role, that in the process of saving the lives of everyone in Egypt and Canaan, all the land and all the property becomes consolidated in the hands of Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh is fairly a benign Pharaoh, right? He's a benign despot. Uh, and then as a result of this action, though we might be able to imagine another situation uh, where the, the, the food was just redistributed, um, the Torah doesn't imagine it and doesn't condemn Joseph. But as a result of these actions that save lives, when Joseph dies and a new Pharaoh arises, who is not benevolent and instead sees the Israelites as a threat to his power, um, the law of unintended consequences, and it's a law, <laughs> it's always a law, uh, takes over and the descendants of Israel find themselves in a debased condition in Egypt. But it's that very debased condition in Egypt that is the necessary precursor to the liberation. And so the question that the Joseph story asks more deeply than any other to me is, is everything necessary in order for us to get to the promised land? You know, does it have to be this way? The Torah seems to answer yes. And the Torah seems to me to hold up Joseph as an exemplar of how we survive all the downs by understanding them as necessary parts of the journey. Um, it's just very deep for me and goes beyond the political and the, um, I wanted to share that. Let's see what Roberta said and then Pauline. Uh, the famine is like COVID, it is everywhere. The federal government response has led to a further consolidation of wealth and power in the 1%. Indeed, the destruction of local businesses, closing of schools, all Pharaoh Trump's plan to do anyway. Yes, I, 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 I really agree with that critique. Whew. And Diane reminds us, get to the promised land and then what? Still not the end. That's right. That's right. Pauline? Yeah, I'm going to speak because I'm not, my hands aren't typing well today. Um, so, so first I want to say that I'm always very careful looking at, did this have to happen in order for this to be? That's, it's a very, it's a dangerous, it's, it's walking, you know, kolahalam kulo. I, I agree, Pauline. It's a very dangerous um, perspective. But, but the, the teaching of Joseph, I think, in the Torah is very much that we don't know, we don't understand so many things about our lives, or we understand it only, we can only understand it in one way when it's happening. It's, it's the picture, the instant camera picture that we have. We need the, the rear mirror with a lot of distance 
to understand the trajectory of what came before and after. So I think that while we, we get to re-understand some things about our lives and, and understand some things about what made us into ourselves, it teaches us that yeah, what went on was horrible. I wish we didn't have the pandemic to have to learn this. I wish this didn't happen to me for me to have. But what Torah is teaching us that at every moment, we have the ability to respond in a lot of different ways. And I think that the going up and down that made Joseph resilient and was able to give him that sense because I think when you have a lot of moments of going in and out of the pit, which most of us have in our lives one way or another, mm-hmm. it gives us that strength and resilience that when we get into that moment again, we don't freak out. We say, okay, I'm on the wave and this might go up and might go down. All I know is that how I choose to think and respond will teach me something about myself, my relationship to why I'm living, you know, trying to live a meaningful life. So that's what Joseph, I think, is teaching us. Um, that, that's why to me, Torah is spectacular because it gives us that trajectory of understanding what a roadmap is while all of these things are occurring at any moment in the same time. And it also tells us to be careful about our governments, that if we stick only to a constitution and there are things written in there that might be fine, because I think we could sail on them because everybody's gonna follow tradition and we don't have to think about what the rules are for this or that, that we better really be careful because we didn't learn that one too well. Thank you, thank you. So I want to carry it at least two levels of um, understanding of this portion. One is we're living in a time when wealth is being consolidated and in, un, in ways we haven't seen um, since the uh, uh, late 19th century in this country. And uh, um, the consequences of that are obvious to all of us um, in terms of um, the the dangers we face. Um, And the story of Joseph in this case becomes a cautionary tale. Even if Joseph's intentions were good, the societal structure that he was working in that allowed wealth to be consolidated in the hands of just one uh, royal court then we see the consequences of it in the next generation as the Israelites are uh, uh, inflicted with murderous treatment by the potentate. Um, uh, Ellen says, wealth being consolidated again, rich people and their politicians have been working to reconsolidate wealth and power since FD before FDR's New Deal. Yes, I know. I'm just saying that on the um, on a graph, it's been going since the post-war. It's been going like this now. 
So in the last decade, it's geometric. That's all I'm saying. Um, I know that that's, this is what makes the world go round. Um, uh, so there's that level of this is a cautionary tale. Uh, even with Joseph's positive intentions and the people's gratitude, this is not the way to run the show because of human nature. And those that is recognized later in the Torah, um, uh, that is recognized later in the Torah in the laws of land redistribution and how to deal with debt in the land of Israel. There are all kinds of incredibly progressive checks on the accumulation of wealth in the Torah. And when, it ex and when the Israelites later request a king, uh, the, 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 the Torah is explicit. If you want a king, they're gonna take your horses, they're gonna accumulate your women, they're gonna conscript your men. It's like, you don't want this. You don't want to organize your society around centralized human uh, uh, control again. Um, and so the Torah is aware of this propensity of human beings to, uh, for, for utter greed and tries to create a society that limits the wealth gap. Uh, so that's one level to read this on. The other level to read it on is the personal which is what Joseph recognizes about his own life. And I'm going to I say this every time and I'm gonna say it again. I never say to another person, oh, the crap that's happening to you is all for the good. Don't say that to me, please, ever. Just be with me and hold my hand and sympathize. But in hindsight, looking at my own life, if I can frame my difficulties and tragedies in a way that allows me to see them as part of a growing arc of my own life, then the next time I go down, as Pauline was saying, I have a framework for surviving that trough in the waves. You understand what I'm saying? But for me to tell someone while they're drowning, oh, this is all gonna be for the best view, you'll see. It's like, take me out and shoot me. That's not what someone needs right then. So I hope I'm being clear about that. It's like in the moment, we need to be there for each other. In retrospect, we wanna help each other frame our experience, create a narrative that's meaningful. The Torah is a meaningful narrative. Joseph is the epitome of someone who takes the crap in his life and puts it into a meaningful narrative that empowers him. That's what we wanna do for each other, but not while the crap is happening, please, okay? That's just insensitive and ridiculous. Uh, um, uh, Meg, and I'm also not getting to all the comments in the chat, I apologize. I didn't write it in the chat, but I'm, a, I'm just a little confused because I'd like to see more light on, you've talked about how the next ruthless Pharaoh is going to treat the Jews and enslave them in a ruthless way. But so what is the relationship? Why are we hearing now about how Joseph treated the Egyptians? How is that gonna bear light? How does it relate to uh, how the, the next, you know what I mean? Cause like when you said, Avadin Hayinu, 
but this was the Egyptians. We've been talking now about the enslavement of Egyptians or the Egyptians becoming serfs, right? Yeah. Okay, so what is, how is this going to connect to how the Hebrews were made slaves? Because in the Torah, what you do, even with good intention, or because you just feel like you have to, has consequences. And so Joseph's participate, the way the Torah works, Joseph's participation in the uh, um, taking the land away and the enslavement of the population of Egypt is going to come around and affect his own people, whether he intended his actions to be negative or positive. Like when, Hag when Abraham kicks out Hagar, he doesn't do it because he wants to. He does it because Sarah tells him to and God says, do what Sarah says. But the result of that action is reflected in our later servitude in Egypt. And so the point is, even those things that we mean for the good or that we do because we have to or are going to result in an equal and opposite reaction. And that's what I'm saying about Joseph's role in enslaving the Egyptians and then Joseph's descendants being enslaved by the Egyptians. Um, that's how I read it anyway. Uh, Ellen Weaver. Um, yes, <laughs> it's really true. And yet when you were talking earlier about the survival of the world, I mean, it's like there's this huge plenty and then whap. It's like the minute the year, the first year of the famine starts, there's nothing. It's like you would think it would take a couple of years to get really bad. But in this particular case, I guess because it's like God is behind all this in, in a way that is different from my reflection of, of God energy. But so right away, it's survival. It, it's instant, barely survival. That, that's all anybody is doing. And I just think, I mean, even keeping the grain from rotting, I mean, for seven years, I mean, that is so complicated a task. I just think, I mean, I totally understand in this particular time where, where we're finally coming awake. I mean, a lot of us have been awake all along, but more awake to the horrible imbalances. It's just, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Okay, okay, um, I, I understand. Uh, I'm gonna go over a few more minutes since we got a late start. Uh, and so I can read some of the comments in the chat also. Um, the Torah is operating here on really mythic terms. So that Joseph, um, jo the world needs to be fed. And because of Joseph's foresight, um, the world, the human, humans are saved. Joseph is a hero in the Torah. And because for me, my reading of the Torah is the Torah is so sophisticated about the human condition, there are, there are still consequences to Joseph's heroism. Joseph's not a bad guy. He's not trying to exploit the Egyptians. He's trying to save lives. 
and there are still consequences to the actions because that's the Torah describes life to me. It's like there, it's it's all black and white mixed together. It's uh, it's what it is. That's what I'm trying to say. I hope I'm getting across. Um, uh, Gary says Nietzsche's assumptions about the effect of wealth distribution are odious though it may be to the extent that has taken place in the USA can be misleading and potentially dangerous. Exactly, Gary, I don't want any moral certainty invading this particular discussion despite trusting our own reactions to things. That's why I'm trying to describe how big the picture the Torah paints is, right? Not to, con not to compel us to inaction, but to kind of um, also to keep us with a, as broad a, an understanding of what's a sense of what's going on is possible. Have you read Joseph Stiglitz? All these Josephs on the 1% ownership that exists now on all of our economy. It is really striking, Roni. Um, uh, as Ellen says, first rule of pastoral counseling and chaplaincy, don't offer a lesson, be there for your friend. How slavery got transferred from all Egyptians to Hebrew is pining for a great midrash. I agree, Carol. Have you heard of Munchausen? People make themselves physically ill. This happens with suffering and therefore as a counselor, you must be there and also illuminate the light, not just be in the darkness with them. Roni, I would say your presence is the light. Um, and uh, that's what most chaplains who spent a lot of time in difficult situations with people discover that the biggest gift they can offer is their presence. And there's actually a uh, incredible teaching about that in the Midrash that I won't go into right now. Uh, Joseph is so human. Eminem had a great lyric about Munchausen. Um, Gary, I love your your, your encyclo encyclopedic mind. Um, valuing impact as much as intention. Uh, good, good everybody, good. <sighs> I can't tie this one up with a bow or else I'd be like going against all the insights that I've been trying to communicate to you. So I'll just leave it at that. But I will say that Roni mentioned earlier about the promised land being when we recognize that this glorious moment is the promised land. And I agree. The promise, the fact that we have this capacity with our consciousness to be able to recognize in the midst of all the, imagine the stormy sea we're on, and, but in the midst of all that storm, to recognize the glory of being alive. And also in that moment of recognition, to understand that the world could be better. Is the vision of the promised land that we imagine for the, for out there comes out of our experience of being fully alive right now. And then saying, why can't we do this all the time? And then continuing to strive in that direction, so may it be. Um, uh, and uh, we live in paradox, says Blaise Ardman. We live in paradise and we live in paradox. Uh, I think we can just leave it right there. Thanks everybody. <laughs>